Hey guys, Eric Lindine here. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you, and that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Uh, God, thank you so much that you are here in this place, and God, that you love us. Uh, thank you for your wisdom and grace. And Lord, I pray that um, you be with those who are camping, who are at the cabin. God, they just feel your presence near. Um, God, those who are maybe going to watch this online or, or listen to it later, God, that uh, you just uh, communicate your truths deeply to them. Those who are watching online right now, God, that they would feel in the room and that they are known and loved and seen. Uh, and God, uh, just pray for your, your mercy and grace on our nation. Um, there's been a lot going on um, uh, this past week. And so, God, we just pray right now that, uh, that uh, your presence would be felt and that as followers of you, God, that we would just be bringers of hope and blessing and peace and love and joy. And we pray. Amen. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, this week has been kind of a crazy week. Um, for everything from school board decisions here in District 279 uh, to Supreme Court decisions to Senate voting on things. Uh, it's been one of those weeks. And before we dive into the message, I was just kind of thinking, I want to address this a little bit from a pastoral way. Um, social media, I think, is not the optimal way to communicate things that are a little bit more of a political nature. And so there's been a lot of different things, even this week, uh, and I've intentionally, I, I haven't really posted anything, and so um, I've seen... Some people say, like, hey, if your pastor hasn't spoken out about this issue or this year this week, find a new church. I think it's a really terrible uh, way to, to view things because you can't really nuance on social media. And so real quick before we dive into the message, um, I don't get political a lot, but we're going to talk just a, lo- a little bit today um, before I dive into the message. Um, if, if you haven't heard, I don't know how, the uh, uh, Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe v. Wade this week. Now, in a church like ours, um, it's a blessing and a hardship that we have people who vote all different ways on the political aisle. Most of my friends who pastor, uh, let's just be honest, north of the Mississippi River in uh, Blaine, Andover, Coon Rapids, um, 99% of their church all vote a certain way. <laughs> uh, they, they have no uh, really uh, disparity of kind of who votes for what candidate. I have friends who pastor in St. Louis Park and uh, South Minneapolis and 99% of the church votes a certain way, and there is no spectrum. Here, it's wide open, which I love. Um, and so what I want us to just be cautious with is there are things as followers of Jesus that we die and defend for. There are things that we discuss, and maybe certain theological blues we can debate. Usually debate's not very helpful, but we can discuss things. Things that we defend is every life is sacred and beautiful and of value, that everyone is welcome at the table of Jesus, amen? That everyone is created in the image of God. Um, and, and so all lives, all people have value and worth. And whatever your story is, we're glad you're coming here. As a church body, this isn't like general talk. This church expression, with me as pastor, there are numerous women who have come in and told me about the abortions they've had. This isn't just out there. We've had women in our church who've had to have DNCs 
to remove miscarriages that didn't survive and had to have that experience, and that was traumatic to them. We've had women who've had ectopic pregnancies that threaten the life of the mom in our church. We've had women who have had horrible miscarriages that have scarred them and are desperately hoping someday to be parents. We've had women in our church get pregnant, their husband goes off to Teen Challenge, uh, and they find out after he goes off that they're pregnant and, and they're wrestling, do I keep this baby, do I not? These are real life things. And so as a church, I want us to just know these are real people on all sides of it. And our job is to love, amen? And, and, and try to listen. And if someone posts something on social media or says something about abortion, gender, marriage, um, all these hot button issues, gun control, our posture should be, hey, help me understand your view and your story, what you've come from, because I, I want to understand and know and not just debate or think that, you know, because I see an issue a certain way that that's the only way. That's how, as the body of Christ, we can be diverse in thought and opinion. And, and, and there are things that we can discuss. And also, to understand, there may be people that are part of our community who are just dipping the toe into following Jesus, who are just exploring what does it mean to follow him. And so they may have different views on some issues. And that's okay. Our job is to love, to let the Holy Spirit do the work of helping us become more like Jesus. And so in this series, we're practicing the way of Jesus. We're going to talk about some practices to help us become more like Jesus. But it starts with a humility and a posture to say, hey, we are all loved by Jesus. If you've had an abortion, dear lady, you are dearly, dearly loved. If you had a miscarriage that ripped your heart out, you are dearly loved and welcome. If you've got pregnant with a fourth or fifth kid and your family members think you're crazy because <laughs> you shouldn't have more kids, you're dearly loved. Wherever you're coming from, if your heart is to be married and have kids someday and that hasn't happened, you're dearly loved and welcomed. That should be our posture. And, and I've just seen so much division online, particularly in social media, and Christians saying one thing or another, or you're not a follower of Jesus if you're happy this week, or you're not a follower of Jesus if you're sad this week. All these things. Man, life is hard. God is good. We're in this together. And so let's just have a posture of humility and understanding. Um, sound good? So that's kind of just my little pastoral talk I wanted to have. Uh, and, th and then we're going to get into uh, the message today. So uh, if questions, let's talk and discuss this more. But again, just, I think at the end of the day, let's have humility, uh, understanding. If there are people in this room, because there are people in this room who have very different beliefs than you. Because <laughs> just knowing who people vote for and, and their stances on things. And I love that. That's good. Um, so we want that kind of diversity. But we want understanding and say, hey, everyone is welcome. Um, so... Uh, this week is one of those kind of defining moment weeks, uh, it just in our nation. There's so much stuff is going on. And so we're going to talk today about defining moments. Have you ever had those experiences where something happens and you're like, I'm never going to forget that for as long as I live? Maybe it was 9-11 for our nation. Um, if you're of a certain age, you will always remember where you were, what was going on, when 
those planes hit the Twin Towers. Um, you know, uh, maybe for those who are a little older than me, the assassination of, of JFK or, or Robert Kennedy. Um, you know, maybe when a certain celebrity broke up, I don't know. And you'll always remember, you know, um, uh, you know when these things happened. Uh, this week, uh, Jesse and I and, and Troy were coaching baseball. We had six games in a week's time, which was a lot of baseball. Basically, about uh, a good chunk of our season was just this week alone. And honestly, I will never forget going into Thursday night's game, uh, playing the undefeated uh, number one seed and, and playing our hearts out and then handing them their first and only loss. Right, Jesse? And uh, celebrating that and running across the field into Jesse's arms as he picked me up and spun me around um, like an officer and a gentleman as uh, the other undefeated team wept tears of sadness, our neighbor, which was just delicious, and Joshua, my son, uh, drank the tears of his neighbor boy, um, who then beat us in the, in the championship game yesterday, so that was fine. We understood that. They were, uh, they were probably a stronger team than we were, but honestly, I'm never going to forget ending their perfect season. We all have these defining moments, and, and, and what do we do uh, with them, whether they're, they're fun or, or, or not? The, the, the rest of the summer, we're going to take like a deep dive into Mark chapter 1. We're going to kind of look at like, kind of like a, a day in the life of Jesus or look at a week in the life of Jesus. So kind of Mark 1 is going to be kind of our home base. And then we're going to kind of bounce around to other parts of the Gospels and other parts of Scripture as we, kind of, as we kind of start in Mark 1 and look at other things and the practices of Jesus. The practices of Jesus are important because if we want to be like Jesus, we need to do the things that Jesus did. And the things we do, the practices we do, the habits we have, do something to us. What we do, do something to us. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, that means good news, and saying, the time, kairos, is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what we'll be diving into today, this idea of what does it mean that the time is fulfilled, kairos, and how do we respond with repentance and belief? We believe God uses these defining moments to teach us something. Uh, These are the point where our, our character, our nature is revealed. How do we respond to times of joy, Times of sadness, these, these, these kairos moments. Uh, what we see in Greek, there's really two words for time. Chronos is the time we experience chronologically. It's start to finish linear experience. It's the, the seconds that turn into minutes, to hours, to days. It's the, it's the flow of time. It, it's, it's the chronos. Kairos is not measured in seconds, minutes, or hours. It's marked by moments. It's these moments that, that means something, that, that mark time, or sometimes time slows down, or sometimes even time speeds up. It's weddings. It's baptism services. It's all church retreats. It's VBS and, and, and talking to a kid and, and then understanding for the first time that their prayers can affect a child in, in a foreign country. It's, it's how do we use these kairos moments. And when Jesus says the time is at hand, that's the word he's using. These are significant events where our lives change or have the opportunity to change, but we have the choice on what we're going to do. We face these kairos moments as a nation this week. Are we going to move somehow forward in unity and be the United States, or are we going to continue to fracture more and more into disunity 
as hyperbole sets in, as, as our political candidates move further and further to each extreme, what are we going to do? It's the great triumphs or losses. Some moments are unmissable, and some honestly just kind of sneak by, camouflage amidst the mundane. But in these moments, we're going to look at an experience of Jesus had with someone, and he had a moment to let it pass by him, but he chose to engage in this Kairos moment. But to set this up first, the question I want to ask you is, did Jesus ever call someone a sinner? Did Jesus ever call someone a sinner? It seems like a weird question, right? Like, because surely he did, right? If anyone was qualified to look someone in the eye and say, hey, you are a sinner, it would be the sinless, perfect son of God, right? But wrong. Not once did Jesus look at someone and said, hey, you sinner. Now, I can hardly believe it because I grew up in the church and it seemed like that's something that Jesus would have said. So you can search your Bible and let me know next week if, if I missed something. But Jesus never called someone a sinner. Does that mean he never talked about sin? No, he talked about sin quite a bit. It's obvious he's talked about it and confronted sin. He never backed down. He never called sin just, oh, someone's weakness or, or you know, they, they had a bad habit. No, it, it's sin. In fact, for someone who didn't call people sinners, he sure did talk a lot about sin. And that, my friends, is the genius of Jesus. He's addressing the root issues while not labeling the person a sinner. See, when Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes at you, they attack your behavior, but not your character. There's a difference between, hey, I sinned, and I'm a sinner. The Holy Spirit says, hey, you told a lie. The devil tries to tell you that you are a liar. The Holy Spirit says, hey, you cheated on your taxes or your spouse, or you did this wrong thing. The devil says, you are a cheater. See the difference? See, Jesus, he never labels people as sinners, but he comes in and he addresses the sin. What labels have people given you? Sinner? Lazy? Fat? Too much? Too quiet? Too shy? Too cold? Too emotional? But I want you to know that Jesus doesn't identify by you in those ways. He calls you by name. That's what we're going to see in this story today in Luke chapter 19. If you're following the gospel of Luke, so now we're kind of jumping ahead further into the life of Jesus. Kind of starting at home base, Mark 1. We're jumping ahead to Luke 19. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to pay for our sins on the cross as a propitiation of our sin. And then he's going to rise again. But while he's on his way, he's got to pass through Jericho. It says, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Because he'd heard about him, but he'd never met him. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. All right, so Zacchaeus, what we see, he is both wealthy and powerful. He's not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. People in general, but men in particular, are prone to want and desire money and power. And that was the focus of Zacchaeus's life. He's a crook and a thief, kind of running his own Ponzi scheme with the Roman Empire. See, he ripped people off, and he was very rich and powerful. Uh, and see, the way the Roman government had set this up was they said, basically, uh, they would take some people who were Jewish and set them up as tax collectors, and, and then these were basically traitors. These are the people we'd put in the category as pimps, and drug dealers, the people who are trying to get kids hooked on drugs, you know, in, in our junior highs. 
This is the worst of the worst. These are the people who betrayed their own nation. They betrayed their own God and their own family to become tax collectors. See, the way this kind of Ponzi scheme worked was the Roman Empire said, okay, Jesse, you're our tax collector now, and so what you need is you need to collect, you know, $10,000 a month from your neighbors and friends around you. Now, anything, Jesse, you can collect over and above that is yours to keep. And, and, and so Jesse then, or Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he'd go around and say, hey, I need, you know, $2,000 from you, $2,000 from you, $2,000 from you. And if anyone pushed back, he had the might of the Roman Empire behind him. And so Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, had many tax collectors collecting taxes for him. And basically, they were extorting as much as possible they could get away with, and people wouldn't push back because they had Roman soldiers there to protect them. And so Zacchaeus, he's rich, he's loaded, he's got a nice vacation home, a staff to serve him, he eats only the finest foods and drinks only the finest wines. And to pay for all that, he's seizing people's homes and assets and cars and bankrupting people and taking their retirement accounts and, and taking their kids' college funds and he's ripping people off. That's who he is. That's what we know about Zacchaeus. He's very rich, he's very powerful, very little. Uh, if you remember Danny DeVito, the actor, I kind of picture Zacchaeus looking a bit like Danny DeVito. And he's got to, think of Danny DeVito in a very rich robe, all right? That, that helps me get a mental picture. And little Danny DeVito, Zacchaeus, he wants to see Jesus, but he's so short he can't see over the crowd. So he does something what a wealthy and powerful person never would. He hikes up his robe. So picture Danny DeVito hiking up his robe, running on ahead, and then climbing a tree, which is something else that guys would never do. So first of all, he's running, which guys in this culture never do, right? Uh, uh, like, there's like kind of three exceptions for guys and running. It's like, you know, if we're doing fitness, or, or like we, we stole something and we're running away, or there's like a dog involved chasing us, right? Those are the exceptions. And none of this is happening with Zacchaeus right now. So people are like, why is he running? But then he climbs this tree. So Zacchaeus, Dan DeVito, in his robe, climbing a tree, and he wants to see Jesus, and so just the thought of Danny DeVito in a tree it just fills me with joy. I love that. And it's like, imagine this. You're going to see a wealthy person, and you're trying to get, and you, you're looking on, you know, Main Street in Maple Grove, and there's, like, Bill Gates up in a tree. Like, that'd be so bizarre. Like, so here's this rich, powerful man up in a tree. And so what would make a respectable, dignified person do this that he would never do uh, is because he wants to see Jesus. And this is a Kairos moment for Zacchaeus. He's encountering Jesus. And what is he going to do? Is Jesus going to pass him by? Or is there going to be an encounter here? How will he respond? What is he going to do? What's funny is Zacchaeus' name literally means the righteous one. Now, all his friends and neighbors who he's been ripping off, they would say that's the last thing that would describe him. But what we're going to see is that Jesus, who changes everything, is going to make Zacchaeus what his name means. That's the genius and beauty of Jesus. So what happens? Jesus sees him up in the tree. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. One of the things I love about Jesus is his sense of urgency. There are times we say, hey, we're, you're welcome here to come and belong before you believe. But at the end of the day, there are times Jesus says, now is the moment. Make a decision. Are you going to get baptized or not? Are you going to dedicate your parenting and your children to God or not? Are you going to step up and belong to your church or be a casual tender or not? Are you going to choose to follow Jesus or not? Jesus says, now is the time. This is your moment. How are you going to respond? 
He says, hurry and come down. She says, I'm on my way to the cross and on my mission, but before I get to the cross, I need to have a conversation with you, Zacchaeus. I need to have dinner with you, Zacchaeus. And that's what I love. Second thing is I love is that Zacchaeus calls him, Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. I don't know how he knew his name, if the Holy Spirit revealed it, or if he's just so notorious, he's the notorious Z-A-C uh, in town that everyone knows this guy. But somehow Jesus knows him, he knows his name, and he calls him by name. And see, friends, that's what Jesus calls you. He calls you by name. He invites you by name. He doesn't call you by your label, but he knows you by name. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm calling you into friendship. I'm going to your house today. Now, this may seem rude in our culture, because for the most part, you know, if I was like, Troy, I'm bringing me and 12 friends to your house. Uh, we're coming to your house today. He'd be like, uh, whoa, okay, how's this going to work? Now, Troy and Amber are very open to the people coming to their house. But still, normally you don't invite, invite yourself and your 12 closest friends, your baseball team, over to someone's house. But in that culture, eating together, coming to someone's friend, meant you are now in community and friendship. Now, I think this is something that we should carry over and continue into our house. Like, we should be, have the spirit of hospitality. Whether you live in a small apartment or a house, whether you have a pool or you don't, to welcome people into your home is a sign of the, of the way of Jesus. We're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, uh, in, in the next couple of weeks. But eating and drinking together as followers of Jesus is one of the primary practices of Jesus. We see again and again and again. That's why next week, we're going to eat together, we're going to drink together, we're going to play together as followers of Jesus. This is important. But by Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house, he's saying, I want to be your friend. Now, do you think Zacchaeus often had people come over to his house? Probably not. Probably he's dining by himself in a big empty dining room, eating these wonderful meals, drinking this good wine all by himself. And I'm sure even people who got invited over, they're not like going to put it on their, you know, Facebook or Instagram stories. Hey, I'm eating at Notorious ZAC's house tonight, you know. Like, it was like, no, you don't want to be associated with this guy. No one wanted to be known that you were going over there. But yet Jesus is telling everyone, hey, Zacchaeus is my friend. I'm going to his house. I'm going to eat a meal together. We're going to hang out. Because I know him and I love Zacchaeus. I think it's amazing that Jesus goes to someone that no one else wants to identify with. And in front of everyone, he says, hey, I want to be in community with you. That's what Jesus does for sinners. He calls us by name. He invites us into friendship. He wants to eat with you, wants to speak with you, wants to help you. Jesus is a friend to us. I think that is amazing. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him, Jesus, joyfully into his home. And when they, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I want to note there's two responses here. Number one, Zacchaeus' response, yes, Jesus, I want to be your friend. I'm inviting you into my home and into my life. Let's go right now. Zacchaeus is so glad that Jesus cares for him. He receives the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. The crowd, though, they're not happy. They're grumbling. This means they're talking about Zacchaeus, not to Zacchaeus. They're talking about Jesus, not to Jesus. They're gasping and grumbling. Some Christians call this sharing prayer requests. What do they say? He's a sinner. You can just hear their smug, religious, righteous overtones going on here. That guy's so much worse than me. Why would Jesus go to his house? What I want to do is I want to ask you a tough question. Who, if Jesus saved, who, if Jesus 
went into their house or called into friendship would make you grumble? Is it that Republican judge who just decided to overturn Roe v. Wade? Is it that abortion doctor? Is it the CEO of that gun manufacturing company? Who is it that if Jesus saved and their life was radically transformed and were invited into friendship and love would make you grumble and complain for most of us that there is somebody out there? That we think there's no way that Jesus could ever love that person. But see, Jesus' love and grace is so much bigger than what we could possibly imagine. That that person you're thinking of, that billionaire, that homeless person, that transgender person, that person who pickets soldiers' funerals and says, God hates you. See, Jesus loves them all. And I think it's scandalous to talk about the grace of Jesus that everyone is invited in. But now we're going to see we all have a choice to respond. And so we have these moments. How are we going to respond? I think there's so much love and hope and encouragement from this story. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus calls out to you. He welcomes you by name. He wants to be your friend. That's what he does for Zacchaeus. That's what he does for me. That's what he does for you and everyone who's followers of Jesus. For those who are not yet followers of Jesus, Jesus is calling out by name to those. Say, hey, come, experience love and grace and forgiveness. Lay aside your jealousies. Lay aside your racism. Lay aside all those, the hatred that you have for others. Come into the family of God. The underlying problem with those who are grumbling, they think Jesus is just going to forgive Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is going to go on with his life like nothing happened, and that all the evil and justice that he's done is just going to be swept under the rug. Perhaps that's why you struggle with that person you're thinking of. You're like, well, if God just saved them, then, then, then there needs to be justice. But see, God is a God of justice, of both justice and love. Amen? So what we're going to see is a few things here with Zacchaeus. Number one is there is repentance going on. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, to Jesus, Behold, Lord, he's calling Jesus Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, he's basically saying, hey, if I've defrauded you, come forward, let me know. I restore it fourfold. So what happens is Zacchaeus is guilty. He knows he's guilty. But Jesus forgives him. And those who are present grumble. They say it's not fair. But Jesus not only forgives people, he changes them. So Zacchaeus indicates he's coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. First, he calls Jesus Lord. Now, for us, that doesn't seem a big deal. But in the Roman Empire, as an employee of Caesar, your job was to say, Caesar is Lord. He's the highest authority in my life. Now, as this citizen, as this employee of the emperor, he's saying, Caesar is no longer my Lord and highest authority. Jesus is now my Lord and my highest authority. It's actually a huge statement that could get him killed. The shortest doctrinal statement in the Bible is Jesus is Lord above all else. Zacchaeus now serves Jesus. He belongs to Jesus. He knows Jesus. He loves Jesus above everything else. And Jesus forgives him and changes him. See, Christianity is not just you can do whatever you want and God will forgive you. Keep doing whatever you want and God will keep forgiving you. 
Christianity is this. You and I start out doing life whatever we want, honestly making a mess of everything. Then we meet Jesus, we realize how sinful and broken we are, and that we need Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. And because you have met Jesus, you don't want to continue to keep sinning because something deep happened to you that Jesus saved you. And so teshuva, repentance, means now you're turning. So now the next thing Zacchaeus is going to do is going to provide restitution. So there's repentance, now there's restitution. Repentance needs to culminate in restitution. Zacchaeus has sins of omission, good things he has not done. He's not helped those less fortunate than him. He's not blessed others with what he's been blessed with. He also has sins of commission. He's defrauded others. He's done wrong. And so his repentance needs to lead to restitution. That's exactly what happens here. Immediately, as a brand new person, he does something he's never done before. He publicly confesses his sin. He publicly practices repentance. And he also guarantees restitution. He says, I'm going to make it right. If I've defrauded you, I'm going to pay you back four times what I have owed you. Now, restitution is not penance. Penance is the false teaching that you've done something wrong and you need to pay God and others back so that you can be forgiven. That is not the teaching of Jesus. Restitution is not works. It's not karma. It's not penance. It's justice. Repentance leads to restitution. Restitution is not just works, karma, or penance. It's justice. It's saying, I've been changed and forgiven, and now the overflow of that, I'm going to try to make things right. So Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away half of what belongs to me. That's a lot, right? Half. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to move from stinginess to generosity, from trying to get all I can get to giving away as much as I can. He said, I'm going to pay people back. You know, it's like, it's like that friend who borrowed your, like, you know, uh, 2004 Hyundai and never gave it back to you. And now this friend meets Jesus and, and he says, hey, I'm sorry. I took your car. I trashed it. and never gave it back. And so I parked a brand new BMW in your driveway. That's what Zacchaeus is doing, right? And it's like, praise God. He's changed his life. He's making restitution. And that results in Zacchaeus having relationship with Jesus and others in the family of God. There's repentance, restitution, results in relationship. The restitution doesn't make the relationship happen. It doesn't save him, but it's evidence of a changed heart. Are you tracking? And so Zacchaeus is now in relation with God and other followers of Jesus. This is a defining moment, a kairos moment for Zacchaeus. And so uh, there's this helpful tool as as we're wrapping up today. Um, uh, There's a guy in England named Mike Breen, and he started a deception movement called 3DM, and he has a lot of these life shapes and, and so we talked about this a little bit, but um, his, his theory is uh, basically we're a culture who remembers images versus words a lot more. And so we're going to talk about some of these life shapes in this series. Um, uh, just kind of like when you see like two circles here and a big circle down here, it's like that's Mickey Mouse, right? That's Disney. Like we have this instant thing that communicates so much. And so the idea is that when you see this life shape, which is a straight line and a circle, you will remember this teaching on like Kairos moments. And so here's what it looks like. Zacchaeus, or us, we're going along in life, we have this moment. And we can continue to go on like nothing happened. This is our nation, right? Right now, we're right here. Are we going to continue on the path we're on? Or are you going to get off? Are you going to teshuva? Are you going to repent? Jesus says, the time is at hand. Repent and believe. And you get off and and, and you, you purposely Take this moment to say, number one, you're going to observe what is going on. Maybe it's a baptism service. You saw someone get baptized. Maybe your, your, your a dedication ceremony, someone's going to dedicate their kids. 
You're at a women's Bible study. You read something, and all of a sudden you feel the spirit stirring. There's a sermon. There is, it's a testimonies from a Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge. There's a stirring in you to give generously or to, to be a mentor or something, right? You have this moment. You can continue on like nothing happened, or you can get off and start to observe. So you stop. And this is helpful now in community. Zacchaeus invites Jesus over. They're having dinner. Zacchaeus is taking his time to stop. What's going on? He's going to reflect on it. This happens oftentimes with people. Okay, um, you know, I was in this service, and you're talking to your friends, or I read this scripture in my women's uh, journal and, and disciples, you know, uh, book. We're reading this, and, and, and here's what I think perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. Now, what do you think? So now you're going to discuss it with people in your life that you trust. This is why community is so important. This is why women's Bible study get together every other week. This is why we've had our men's group get together at different times. This is why community groups are important. This is why even if you're not in an official community group, you have to be doing life with people. So when you have these Kairos moments, you can observe it, you can reflect on it, your journal, whatever it needs to be, you're now discussing it. This is part of the repentance process. You're, you're turning, you're realizing there's something going on in your life that God is stirring up, the Holy Spirit's at work, and what are you going to do about it? It's not just passing on by. And this is really hard to do by yourself. It really happens best in community. Now, that can be with like just two or three others or maybe a handful of people. Now, if you are blessed to be doing life with people, take this very seriously. That, that to, to say, here, here's where I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. Aaron, as you shared with me, you had this moment, and you observe it, reflect what we're talking about now. Don't just say, thus saith the Lord, but to be careful and say, hey, as we discuss this, here's perhaps what I think God wants you to do now. So now, you're going to make a plan. All right, God has stirred something in my heart. I'm going to be a mentor now at Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge. So what do I need to do? Next step is I need to sign up for it. I need to go through their, their process, whatever it might be. Now, you need someone to hold you accountable. So Zacchaeus did these things. He's got a plan. I'm going to pay people back fourfold. I'm going to give away half of my belongings. He's saying this in front of everyone so that you don't just continue on nothing that happens. Now people are going to hold you accountable. So now you say, hey, ask me about this. Hey, I realized while I was away at, at all church retreats, you know what? God stirred in me. I haven't really invested in community with others in my church lately. And I look around, and I don't really know a lot of people here. All right, I can continue on like nothing happened, or I can make a plan and change. You're observing it, you're reflecting, you're discussing it, and you're saying, now I need to do a better job that I'm having a bonfire. I'm going to invite people who are in my church over so I can get to know them better. So your friends are like, okay, next time you have a bonfire, I'm going to ask you, hey, how are you doing this? Hey, how are you doing on uh, signing up for that uh, mentorship? Hey, how are you doing on starting tithing for the first time in your life? Hey, how are you doing when you decided that God's calling you to start reading your Bible on a regular basis three days a week? How's it been the last couple of weeks? Hey, you told me you wanted to pray more. You want to start fasting one day a week. You've been discussing with people you care about. You're turning. Now belief means action. You've got the plan. People are holding you accountable. This is why we need community. We need people in our lives. So Zacchaeus is saying this from everyone. Now they're going to hold him accountable. And you have to act on it. You have to actually do it. Then, uh, this arrow is a little wrong. I like sometimes 
it sh really arrow should go off in a different direction instead of like it goes. Uh, so the secondary arrow. So you have the choice either keep going like nothing ever happened or you have these moments and now you're on a new trajectory. So this is one of the things of, of knowing that we are, are followers of Jesus is we're taking these moments. We're being aware of the Holy Spirit stopping and all of a sudden time slows down and, and, and you're, you're, you're listening to a sermon, you're out in nature, you're in community with people, and you're realizing something needs to change. The problem is, so many of us, we just, we observe it, listen to the sermon, worship moment, retreat, baptism service, whatever it might be, and go on, nothing happens. And this is what I've seen again and again and again the last six, seven years. People having these moments, but then not acting on them. We have to do, Jesus tells us, repent and believe. We have to repent and believe. So take some time to observe what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? What is God telling you? Because we should be constantly changing, become more like Jesus, right? And as we talk about these practices, Pastor Ryan and I are going to be talking about simplicity of life, solitude, silence, prayer, fasting, scriptures. The goal is you don't just hear a sermon and nothing changes. You observe it, you're going to reflect on it, you're going to discuss it with people you care about, you're going to make a plan. If you're going to hold you accountable, you're going to act on the plan. That's how we change. So, for instance, this might be you lose your job, right? It's a Kairos moment. You observed. Perhaps there's something God wants to teach me through this. You're reflecting on with people. You're discussing it. Now you come up with a plan. All right, what I need to do is I need to trust Jesus in this season. And, and so what do I need to do? I need to put some scriptures printed off on, on my mirror. And I, I need to remember this. Now people ask me, hey, did you do that thing? Do you actually act on it? You know, um, uh, again, hey, I need to, I've realized I need to dedicate my parenting to Jesus. Okay, so what, what are we going to do? Okay, what does God tell about this? Discuss with others. I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to do this. Did you actually do it? Act on it. So we, we need to have these moments where, where, where when, when something hits you, you don't just continue on, ignore it. You go through this circle. Does that make sense? Tracking with it? I know, this is kind of a, it's, it's kind of like the most heady of the practices of Jesus, but it's really at the start of, of Mark 1, and I think it's good to remember. So we're going to try to touch base on this over the rest of the summer, as again, we're going to talk about what does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, uh, to have a life of, of simplicity, a life of solitude, a life of prayer, a life of, of scripture. How do we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil? Uh, all these things, that's what we're going to talk about this summer, and, and these, these practices to be like Jesus, so we can become like Jesus, do the things that Jesus did. Now, this side of heaven, we're never going to reach perfection. But Jesus is our true north, right? That's where we're going. We have to have something that we're pointing ourselves to with the hope then of someday heaven and glorification will become perfect. Not on this earth. So, so we don't get discouraged saying, I'm never going to be as good as Jesus. Exactly. But that's who we want to be like. We want to be someone who calls people by name who welcomes them into friendship, says you are loved, you are seen. Even when everyone else calls you a sinner, even when everyone else shuns you, I don't. I love you. I see you. I want to know you. And we look at Jesus and we say he is beautiful. He is desirable. He is someone we want to be with. He embodies all the great things that humanity can be. And we say, hey, we have that same spark inside of us. We can become like Jesus. We can be courageous. We can step up and do the right thing. But how are we going to do that? We have to embody these practices of Jesus. All right, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite the band up. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're here with us.
And God, I pray that we would truly believe that the time has come. And God, that we would observe these Kairos moments when, when they pop up at baptism services and all church retreats and, and weddings and, and VBSs and, and testimonies uh, from, from recovering alcoholics and addicts. And God, we, we would listen to your spirit and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? That we'd reflect on it and we would, we would discuss it and we'd, we'd make a plan and we'd have people hold us accountable so that we could change and, and grow and be more like you. God, our desire is that in the next 12 months we become more like you than we are now. And that we would grow and change and, 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 and have more love and more grace and, and more peace and more compassion, more gentleness, more kindness. God, that the fruits of the Spirit would, would flow out of us. That we seek to understand and love instead of vilify and point fingers and, and, and contribute to the brokenness in our society. God, I pray that we would not uh, just rail against those who, who vote differently than us or think differently than us. That, God, that we would love we would seek to understand. We'd have kindness. God, that's our desire. That's our hope. So be with us now and this week. Help us to follow in your footsteps to be more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Maple Grove podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic Maple Grove. Your generosity allows this message to go out into the world. You can be a part of the Mosaic Tribe by going to mymosaicchurch.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace, my friends.